Welcome to Trapartisan Radio, brought to you by Trapar Books, Films and Editions. Today I'm talking to Billy Stegerwald, a Gnostic priestess and a great author on many interesting topics such as Gnosticism, qualitative intelligence, um, Hermetic Kabbalah and a lot of other things. Uh, you probably know her from uh, contributions to the Fenris Wolf and she's writing more and more and hopefully we'll see a book by her sometime in the f- near future. Uh, but for now, enjoy the conversation. I suppose I will call myself a mystic, um, starting from an early age. Um, and I could call myself an occultist or a magician, but I am, I think, more of a mystic in the sense that I am more about experience um, and what that brings, the comprehension that it brings and the expansion that it brings one, um, than manipulating forces, which is part of, it's going to happen either way. And it's a natural part of the process that you're interacting with reality. But um, yeah, and in terms of what I am doing, I am, I, I feel like I'm working with ideas and trying to sort of translate experience, translate experience and look at things that are typically liminal and unexpressed and attempt to express them. But that being said, in my writing, I, you know, because I love to study and learn, I I like to integrate systems and details from the past. It's almost like a process of scrying into things. Uh, But here I am talking about sort of what I do and not who I am. Um, Well, for some people, it's the same, almost. It it is. Yeah, it is the same. Well, I think that identity is a process. It's a movement. It's not an object. So I have a hard time objectifying myself. And I, I don't, there's a tendency to want to, I think, as human beings, which is, I guess, what the ego is. But um, I also sort of pull away from that. It's a tug of war. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that that you definitely are, you're an amazing writer, uh, and you're interested in these interesting things, but you also manage to convey and encapsulate very fascinating ideas, many of which are from an era and sort of, um, I don't know if arcane is the right word, but they're old, basically, and you, you repackage them in new ways that make it very, very fascinating. And you've been writing uh, two pieces for Fenris Wolf, one for Fenris 10 and the upcoming Fenris 12. And you recently also partook of our Visionary Medium Conference in uh, Copenhagen, uh, which was absolutely wonderful. And and um, that kind of essay writing, I feel a great affinity with. Uh, it's a great format. Um, and so I'm just curious, what are you working on now in terms of uh, essay writing or writing in general? Well, to be honest, I'm still finishing up the editing process for the talk that I did at your wonderful conference, which was absolutely amazing. And, you know, I will be coming whether I'm speaking or not next time. It was amazing. But yeah, so I'm working on that and I'm sort of, I'm infusing it with a bit of extra color, I would say. 
it's on the page, you know, it's a bit different than when you speak, I think, or it can be. Um, but I have a lot of projects that I have lined up for myself. Um, I'm actually looking forward to just sort of free floating for a little while and just letting ideas come to me um, without having a specific deadline um, after this is finished. But um, some of the things that I want to look at are, well, Gnosticism is an ongoing thing. So I want to sort of take some time with some texts that I haven't taken time with. Um, but I, I am thinking, you know, of starting to on a book and I want to take my time with that because I have several ideas doing. One of them um, is actually about something I call qualitative intelligence, which is a, um, I think it's a aspect of our consciousness that's always there with us that is somewhat misunderstood. I, I could go off on a tangent about this, <laughs> but it's basically like, the artist, what some would call an artistic or intuitive sense of things, I think is actually, and it's often um, labeled as illogical. I feel it's actually quite rational. It has its own um, internal order, both in the way that we can process it and, and the way that it presents itself. And I think this is the language you know, that's described, that's pointed to um, in occult literature where there are tables of correspondences. Mm. It's basically quality unto itself um, and, and qualia, the way we experience that, I think is a very potent magical force for exploring the world um, and the other world. And um, so I want to write about that because I feel like it has not actually been examined, but instead sort of relegated to the realm of the illogical and irrational and intuitive. But I think that it's actually those people who have no rational sense of it, not that it is irrational in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I look forward to to hearing more about that, and and of course reading that book eventually. But I mean, it's it's just a it's a very very fascinating um, uh, idea and, and and trajectory too. I think I've been fascinated recently with with uh, the term uh, occulturation, uh, which is basically mm -hmm. when something moves from the occult into the you know, public arena or, or the mainstream, even uh, what's usually called uh, occulture, but that kind mm -hmm. of process where something goes from from for many reasons, you know, things that are kept hidden and then merging through various uh, uh, usually cultural avenues uh, and liberal avenues. Um, it is fascinating uh, why that happens, and I and the the these things that you mentioned these very vague terms in a way, you know, mm. rational slash irrational, uh, intuitive, and, and, you know, uh, perhaps, I don't know, instinctive. There are always these dichotomies that essentially don't mean anything because we exist and we take in information and we process it, and then we sort of express it in communication with other people. Uh, and that's basically it. Everything else, these terms are just like supra. They're all, you right. know... Uh, imposed upon us in in order to i guess fit a category or fit a way of thinking but it's um i find it more and more redundant actually it, it's kind of counterproductive 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have everything that we can express, which is not the thing itself. And then we have this world that is full of experience. And either these experiences are given meaning or they give meaning to us or not. And mm-hmm. even the not part, I think, is wonderful. Sometimes, I mean, I talk about this sort of basic most basic principles of reality as being mind and mystery. Mm-hmm. And the mystery is important. We can't reject the mystery. But it's not, um, the mystery is constantly moving around. We can't pin it down on any one thing. Right, exactly. And I'm just, uh, most of the stuff that I've seen that you have um uh, written uh, has something to do with Gnosticism and of course that's a huge subject, a huge area but I'm curious how your interest in Gnosticism uh, began, where, where does it come from? Wow, you know it's interesting because I was not into Gnosticism when I was younger I got um, I got into occultism very young, I started reading tarot cards when I was 14 um, 15 and started studying Kabbalah and uh, Hermetic Kabbalah and um, and I was very influenced by Tantra and all kinds of things but um, I knew a Gnostic when I was uh, like 19 or so no I actually met him when I was 17 and I was he was a bit on the negative end of it at that time although he isn't today and I was a bit turned off because, I mean, especially from like a tantric perspective, the universe is not considered to be in any way a mistake. Although, you know, there is the idea of Maya. Um, so it was quite a long process for me to come to Gnosticism, which, I mean, that's just how things work, right? But um, I, so I've been studying Hermetic Kabbalah for probably 10 15 years and then there was just this breaking point where i felt sort of limited by it i do think that that is a beautiful system to work with and i but i do think that you sort of you really make it work when you allow the system to sort of transcend itself yeah from within and um but i had been doing that for some time and and then suddenly i found neoplatonism Mm-hmm. And there's this particular writer, he's brilliant, uh, modern philosopher, I would say. Um, and he, I just read some of his writings and it was fascinating to me. And I started learning more about philosophy and ancient philosophy. And um, and that really connects to Gnosticism. I mean, that's something that's often brought up is the Neoplatonic influence on Gnosticism. Um, and it also was connecting. So once I sort of jumped into Gnosticism, I was seeing it from a very different angle than I'd seen it before. And that wasn't just due to studies, but also due to my sort of personal contemplations, which I was doing, I was contemplating consciousness and I was, you know, making a lot of drawings and diagrams and thinking about consciousness and the inversion of consciousness and the ideas that I was having and the sort of ontological arrangement that I was creating ended up very much connecting with Gnosticism 
And specifically with the part of Gnosticism that had bothered me previously, which was this this idea of this evil demiurge figure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so that's where it all sort of started. And um, it's, it was interesting because my connection with it isn't just, it's obviously not just intellectual. Um, it's very fascinating on that level as well. But um, there's a feeling that this is just what I'm meant to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very strong. And it, it's not that, oh, Gnosticism, which isn't a thing. It's not one thing, right? Mm-hmm. But this stream of um, this, these various streams that we call Gnostic, there's something there that I feel I need to work with. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're supplying me with everything that I need because I'm no longer interested in that. I think that philosophy was a bridge into that state yeah. because I think that philosophy, sometimes people think of it as like this dry armchair kind of thing, but I think that it's mystical. And if you look at the origins of it, it is absolutely mystical mm. and traditions that are not even considered uh, philosophies are very much philosophies expressed through myth, like the Egyptian tradition. I believe that they had a very developed sense of philosophy that they they were expressing through their myths. Mm-hmm. So, um, where was I? Um, so it's Gnosticism, you know, has to do with gnosis, and this is direct mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. So. This connects to my idea of philosophy, which is that the mystic should be sculpting their own vision. Yeah. Should be creating their own, not creating, uncovering their own ontological structure and let that process be continuous and evolving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'm not sure I got that or if you actually said it. Who, who was the writer that, that influenced you? name is edward butler Mm -hmm. and he's actually on facebook and he has a website um i think what is it called henosis.com i think Mm -hmm. so he's really wonderful he has a whole um sort of like mini encyclopedia of writings on egyptian gods Mm -hmm. i think was one of the most interesting things initially to me i think that's how i found him Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things, you know, Gnosticism and Neoplatonic thought and, and uh, other schools and philosophies, they're usually called uh, perennial, uh, meaning mm-hmm. that they've <laughs> basically hung around for a long time and yeah. very likely they will carry on doing that because they have some kind of, uh, again, some kind of mysterious uh, core or value that just keeps radiating. And what would you say is it that makes these uh, perennial philosophies still so valid? Well, I mean, if something is valid a thousand years ago, it will still be valid today. I mean, it in when you're talking about the core of, of reality, um, in terms of these, in terms of Gnosticism, I mean, I think that you'd say a lot about well, no, I won't say that. <laughs> I think that it actually is misunderstood. So to discuss what I think is really timeless about it would be to sort of have, you would have to sort of go through 
some of these points that I could make. Um, I think that, I think that, well, if we think about, again, the word gnosis and what mm. that means, it's to do with seeing and to directly experience something, to have gnosis of something is to directly mm-hmm. experience it. And um, I think that that, if you embark upon that process, eventually you will start to unearth structures of reality that are timeless mm-hmm. and um and i think also though you know there are something is perennial also because it's somewhat universal and it connects to other it is you know like other perennial philosophies um so you can hit it from different angles mm. and so one of the things about what is perennial is that it can be expressed and must be expressed in an infinite variety of ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that these systems that are perennial are inherently fluid and transparent mm-hmm. and can be seen from multiple angles and interpreted in multiple ways. And I don't think that multiple um, interpretations actually diminishes the truth i think it actually is uh, a sign of truth mm-hmm. yeah exactly you have a wonderful uh, um, phrasing or uh, expression here in in the one in fenris 12 you're right uh, about philosophers in general uh, uh, that the truth is valued more than the vessel that contains it it's almost like mm-hmm. it is an organism in itself that sort of chooses or finds its little philosophers uh, throughout the times yeah. So it's, it's like um, I wouldn't say a divine core, but but it's definitely a, a corpus, a, a thinking sort of sentience, almost uh, containing so many different things that s- constantly attract new generations. I find it absolutely fascinating, much more so than, for instance, clear-cut magical systems. Saying mm-hmm. like in the grimoire tradition, you do this and that. It's a very causal thing but this is more amorphous in a way and thereby also more attractive i would say yeah it's amorphous but at the same time it's less i mean there's that can be almost an unsettling thing um for some people and i understand that but i also think it's strange that um i'm not i'm not it's not wrong or anything like that because the mystery is important but Mm. i have never felt quite right about doing magic following a ritual where there are elements that I don't understand and I'm just Mm -hmm. supposed to do them. So for me, I've done, you know, I've done a few PGM spells, Mm -hmm. the Papyri, Greke, Makike, right? Um, Yeah. I've done a few of those, but when I have done, uh, the ones that I chose, I looked over. And so even if you don't understand it logically, you should, feel a resonance and understand for instance with the barbarous names yeah i feel like when you you look at them you can feel what they're communicating back to the qualitative intelligence which i'll explain later in a book um Mm -hmm. that intelligence understands but i don't i i'm not going to ever engage in something that is sort of outside of my own understanding um unless it is to understand it you know you can engage with something commune with it in order to open up a doorway to Mm -hmm. gnosis right but i 
I don't, I don't function in that way. Um, so like the, the sort of magic that I do and the, like the mystical union that I, um, engage in, Mm. it's, it's, the, it's spontaneous and I actually would just sort of roll with it mm-hmm. and I feel that I learn more from that than from any other technique that right. I tried exactly and also both you and I are, are distinct uh, authors you know and wouldn't you say that that kind of uh, almost you know revelation often comes when you're writing like you yeah. connect the dots in a kind of a uh, supra-conscious way absolutely I love conversation and even before I ever thought of about it in terms of philosophy or anything like that, I had at an early age as a teenager, I had these people around me. I was very lucky to find them. Uh, they're kind of crazy, but you know, um, they had brilliant minds and we had these amazing conversations where it was almost like we would be opening up some gateway. And seeing, sometimes there would be almost this collective vision of reality that we would create together. And I love that so much. And whenever that left my life and I was more alone, that was when I started really focusing on my writing and it became a conversation. So I think that whether it's with another or with your laptop or the page, Mm -hmm. it is this magical conversation. Mm-hmm. that opens up you know it's uh yeah just as you said it opens up new um realizations it's a mystical thing for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i think we can see that that there are many things going on in our culture and i mean like on a planetary level uh where there is uh not a perhaps resurgence but there is a uh, a strengthened impact from things having to do with holistic thought, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that we're all one, it's one system. And that itself exists also in, in Gnosticism, as it does in shamanism, as it does in uh, Chinese Tao. Um, it's just to- totally perennial <laughs> human understanding of, of mm-hmm. things. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, you uh, perhaps specifically from the Gnostic point of view, whether you think that has to do with the... Um, the dire straits that we're in, and also specifically culturally, humanly, this kind of increasingly uh, fragmented view of ourselves. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, identity politics and and uh, imposed dysphoric concepts uh, that become yeah. trends and lifestyle fads. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Like uh, we need to shape up and and sort of commune and pool and and become one somehow. Absolutely. And um, there's a glue that holds our reality together. And really, I mean, there's intellectual glue, and then there's the other. And we have the int- we have intellect, but when it's separated from the other side, um, it becomes self-referential, and it starts almost cannibalizing itself. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we're doing to ourselves, in a way. Um, you know, chopping our chopping um, everything up into little pieces, um, but because that's what the intellect does, and it's a wonderful thing. But again, when you're missing the other side, um, it's a problem. So the other side is a sense of not just beauty, 
but how um how I mean again I wanna I don't I guess I could just keep on talking about this qualitative intelligence that no one knows, you know, because I mean I haven't explained it yet, right? But um I think that it's about a sense of beauty being lost and I think that our sense of artistry has been lost and a big part of that is consumerism yeah and our disconnection from nature and the natural world mm. we no longer understand the language of nature and that's really what this qualitative intelligence is it's the language of nature mm. we could even call it the language of the birds right um which if there are people that aren't familiar with that term it's it's basically the same as the angelic language and then in medieval occitania it was called the green language as well as the language of the birds it's basically you know the in terms of just the language this has to do with um phonemes actually having a value an essence that is is not just contextual mm -hmm. so i mean speaking of language and sort of the fragmentation of a reality i mean that that's even reflected in the idea that there's absolutely no inherent meaning in um, in sound. So every language is just isolated, and it's just this self-referential system. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that sound has anyone that listens to music should know that sound has an essential meaning but not a, a meaning that is rational in the, the normal sense of the word mm. it is um but it communicates something and we could just say it's communicating something emotional but i feel that our world is very much um suffering from a lack of emotional intelligence and an awareness of the language of art and of mm. nature. Mm. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm thinking also um, this thing where um, uh, it's also part of the perennial thing. I'm thinking of Pythagoras, for instance, the Pythagorean thought and structuring and analyzing, you know, music and the the scale, and uh, that in itself leads on to the harmony of the spheres and these, exactly, yeah. yeah, heavy duty concepts. That are so inspiring when you think about them that that uh, you know it's not something perhaps it's mentioned in music schools but these were totally abstracted philosophies that made perfect sense and yeah. you know the music music we have stems from from these minds thinking thinking it and sort of emulating um natural structures it's it's a uh, much <laughs> it's completely uh beyond the trite and kind of banal occultism of push and pull. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's just uh, on a cosmic scale uh, that can absolutely affect us. And that's the kind of intersection that interests me with Gnosticism also. Because as you've said, uh, it's a direct thing. You know, you don't need a kind of monotheistic priesthood to explain it to you. Or actually, you should stay away from that and just go straight to the source. And that again, the source is an interesting term, but perhaps it has been used too much um, in in uh, the times that we are in right now. But still, you know, uh, I believe, and I think you do too, that we have a source that is basically um, 
our rubber band that's tied to mother nature or the umbilical cord in a way we can't really mm-hmm. separate from it and the oneness is just the acknowledgement of saying we're part of this much much greater thing that is also part of a much much greater thing so we're just um, uh, tiny parts however we are thinking parts and we are feeling parts and we can sort of come to this realization and that's the sad thing i believe uh, and think that um everything is so commodified that even the good things, the good ideals, the good thoughts, they immediately become sucked up into this morass of commodified uh, consumerism, uh, specifically with things having to do with really crucial things like identity. And and, um, it defeats its own, uh, I don't know, uh, altruistic purpose in a way. And it's, it's kind of sad. Yeah, and commodification is ultimately codification and even you know the way that things are advertised it's all sort of encoded and of course they use you know subliminal messages but it's all based in code and just you know packaging something up that's sort of what um it is to codify something Mm -hmm. and again this is not bad in and of itself but when it becomes sort of cancerous then Mm -hmm. it's a problem um, and, you know, speaking of music, the way that a lot of modern music is created, it seems to me, is that they're sort of taking all these different styles that they like and then thinking, and I'm, I'm sure this isn't really true in all cases, obviously, mm. but from my view, what I hear is a lot of music where it's almost like this weird Frankenstein's monster of different stylistic elements that are sort of codes for something that mm-hmm. the view the listener is supposed to understand and respond to and relate to mm-hmm. but back to you know quality and essence and that direct experience um you mentioned music of the spheres if we listen this is sort of a tangent but i'll i'll loop it back around um, if we listen to recordings, NASA space recordings of the planets, it's extraordinary because, I mean, they, they convert, I guess, these these sort of um, waves into sonic wavelength. And then mm-hmm. they, they sound exactly like the classic ideas of the planets and their qualities. Mm-hmm. And it's extraordinary. But... Um, so there's something that is it's very real it's embedded into a reality it's not just a subjective thing and then you know also going into music we have you go back to ancient greece the modes and they were very aware of each mode provoking a particular emotion Mm. um and and not just an emotion um you know they would stimulate certain types of activities and if you wanted to you could come up with an entire chain of correspondences for each of these modes Um, but the point is that when we codify everything becomes sort of binary and that binary way of processing reality actually cuts us off from really experiencing it if every you know if you judge everyone is like they're a, a two and they're a ten or they're bad, they're good. That is basically what we're dealing with here. You know, that's a that's the major problem at the heart of the sickness of our world is this 
sort of binary way of looking at things. And people are so out of touch with the sort of the what's behind that is being cut up by it, that they don't even recognize, um, they don't They don't seem to actually recognize, for instance, like certain kinds of AI art that I've seen. They're, it's very inharmonious mm-hmm. and you can really feel it, but a lot of people don't feel that. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, some things are subjective, but, um, I think harmony is something that you have to learn how to sense. Yeah. Same way that a baby has to learn how to use its eyes. Mm. It's inherent to us, but it's not necessarily something that we'll learn if we never have the opportunity. Mm. Mm. Uh, in Fenris 10, you, you um, had this wonderful piece uh, about uh, the tonic seed. Uh, and sort of the relationship w- with uh, the earth, specifically having to do with the concept of uh, katabasis, you know, going down mm-hmm. into the underworld. Uh, and I'm just curious if you think that um, the planet as such, or perhaps we should limit it to to humanity as such, do you think that we're going through a katabasis at the present time? Mm. I'm sure. Um, I would hope so, because it's actually... <laughs> means that we're doing something good, whether we realize it or not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because we are, like I, I talk about in that piece, um, the underworld isn't automatically hell. But the hell to me is the phantoms of our own ignorance that get stirred up when we actually pull ourselves away from this constant engagement, which is that is very relevant you know it's very relevant in regards to the constant media stimulation that we're all experiencing yeah so if not i suppose that in and of itself is a kind of a hell but what we really need is to actually pull ourselves away from that and um and once we do that that's when the the sort of hell really begins i think um and that's why a lot of people don't end up wanting to do something like self-reflect they -hmm. don't want to spend even half an hour without their phones or you know alone woods Mm -hmm. um so yeah we're sort of collectively seeing we're seeing the collective phantoms i mean the phantoms could be those cell phones could be all of these distortions um, that we have created, which we think of as part of our, um, you know, part of reality. But those are in a way phantoms of a hell of our own making. But it's actually up to the individual. And that's the importance is not, I mean, some people maybe are meant to make changes on the collective level, but it always starts with the individual. And so our job is to actually go into our own hell experience and not just engage in the collective hell experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, much, if we talk about, uh, let's call it referential systems that are helpful for the individual and also I think for the community, much of this perennial thinking uh, that we are accustomed to comes from an era in which sort of uh, a pan pantheistic uh, polytheistic approach fought um, 
for uh, um, I don't know or with monotheistic forces basically uh, fought mm. for the, the arena this is a kind of an interesting breaking point there and I wonder what do you think are the advantages of a, of a polyfe- polytheistic pantheon in this regard of being helpful for uh, the individual herself I definitely think so um I mean, it all comes down to terminology. As a Gnostic, and this is why I became Gnostic, really, the core of it, which, I mean, I'm not you know, trying to categorize myself, but I am engaged with this. It's about not, to me, it's actually about not worshipping any gods as much as they might be my friends um, and allies, you know, and maybe be more powerful, but than I, but um, it's actually about communing directly and only with the absolute transcendental principle, which for me is the abyss, which is actually something that the word was something significant to me and my, um, my spiritual sense of my, you know, how I was anchored before I ever became Gnostic. And then as it turns out, abyss is the first principle in many Gnostic systems or several. Um, So in terms of engaging with different images of the human psyche through the gods, absolutely, it's very important. Um, I think that, I mean, this form of monotheism that's been dominating the Western world for several thousand years is is quite ill in that Mm -hmm. it's not complete. It's not a complete um, mirror. It can't be a complete mirror for the human psyche. Yeah. In terms of actual gods, I mean, I, I've interacted with beings and I've, I've, I find them wonderful. I don't, I don't think that it's healthy for us to worship either multiple gods or one God so much as commune with them. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I, that's the healthy way that I go about things. Mm. There's also uh, an interesting, um, I don't know, it's not one breaking point, but there was actually a hostile takeover, you know, when the monotheistic uh, powers uh, stole the fire or stole the scene, the arena from the Gnostics, you know, because mm-hmm. they were sort of the original monotheists in a way, but it was never meant to be a big daddy. It was just meant yeah. to be the, the oneness. Uh, and um, that, of course, has shaped uh, culture and life as we know it. And I would say we can only speculate, but I think overall it's been for for uh, for the bad. <laughs> Although yeah. we're we're specifically we're we're fine and everything, but if you look at culture and how horrendous these things are, and everything that's gone wrong can be traced back to um, monotheistic, ravenous uh, imperialism and and uh, I don't know, just very inhumane ways of acting and unnatural yeah. ways of acting. So I think that it's important that uh, it's pointed out that this is sort of the original step from uh, perennial philosophy over the Greeks and then came something that was tried to uh, that was actually pushed out and they carried a lot more signal and inspiration I would say than any of the monotheistic religions uh, have managed to yeah well I mean 
in terms of Neoplatonism, you have the one, but the one was not God. It wasn't a person and it was apophatic. So yeah. it was incomprehensible and unknowable and you could only experience it through mystical union. And I think it was Plotinus that said that you incline your mind away from it. And I think that it then sort of floods you as an experience. So I think that monotheism as we've known it is, it's really just giving this idea of a one, um, you know, it's a, giving it a bad name, but I think there are layers and layers of misunderstanding of what that's meant to be. Yeah. I mean, even in terms of the idea of graven images, I don't personally, I don't resonate with having a statue, like mm. a anthropomorphic image on my altar that I focus on. I don't, but it's, it's not about, um, you know, that that's there's something wrong with that it's about looking beyond that and even when when the ancient people use the statues i believe that in many cases they were seen almost as like a gateway or a window exactly yeah not you know an, a divine thing um but um you know the idea of of a god or a divine force that is beyond our conception is very potent, but you cannot take that and then remove all the intermediaries, mm. which are multiple. Exactly. No, I mean, it's fairly obvious that it's all about control. It's just the control systems that use the symbol of a very stern father that appeals, mm -hmm. of course, to weak-minded people. And people are encouraged to be weak-minded or actually programmed to be weak-minded, so they just continue worshipping daddy. Um, very very unhealthy uh, that said uh, um, there's uh, you've written about the rights of uses and you've written about um, androgynous aspects and this sort of erotic tension between the masculine mm -hmm. and the feminine in us all and also in the outer uh, mm -hmm. and it all um, it seems to all point to the same thing that we simply have to transcend the dualities and come to a new kind of um, uh, conclusion and and unity with ourselves and of course that's basically what all the great mystery schools and all the great true religions have advocated uh, mm -hmm. and i'm curious like on an end note what you think um, uh, young people um, interested in these things what they should actually do mm -hmm. billy's uh, 10 step program or three step <laughs> program <laughs> yeah. um learn to be alone and really pay attention to what you're experiencing in any given moment. And I mean, question everything, question what you are experiencing. This, this sort of constant questioning, it's actually a doorway. It opens up something beyond the constructs that we've been given. So that would be very important. And I think that also, you know, you want to engage with external systems and just explore them freely. Um, try not to latch on to one. Think of it as, you know, a friend, not some sort of 
God, like when you open up a book, it's a friend that's telling you something that they think, listen to it and then have a conversation. And then, you know, discipline, as much as I'm terrible and undisciplined, just taking moments to focus on something. And if you want to start doing ritual, it can be as simple as lighting a candle because fire, speaking of, you know, just ancient traditions, just having a flame and maybe some water, that's really all you need. And there are several ancient traditions where that was the center of what they were doing a fire altar so it doesn't have to be complicated um it's really about your consciousness and how it is interacting with the totality and and at some point the inside becomes like the outside and the outside becomes like the inside then that's the goal is to sort of reach a point where you can feel that you you've contextualized everything for yourself so systems are good because it trains your mind to think in a different way and it deconditions you. An occult system of thought is almost like another language that you can learn. And we all know that when you <clears throat> speak a language, it actually conducts your consciousness in particular ways to particular conclusions. So yeah, just sort of explore. I, you know, I think that's about it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Billy. Thank you so much. And and uh, good luck with the writing. And we look forward to having you back on Interpartisan Radio soon again. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. For more information about all our books, films, and editions, please visit www.trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T trapar.net You can also sign up for our newsletter at the site. I recommend that you do that so you get all the news immediately. Please also visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Vanessa23carl That's patreon.com slash Vanessa23carl 